Well, good morning to everybody here that is meeting with us in person and for everybody that's meeting with us online. It is a great second Sunday of Advent. And as I shared last week, I love this season because uh, I think there's so many things that compete for our affections during this time of year. And for us to be able to once a week gather together on a Sunday morning and to genuinely reflect on the values that God seeks to uh, really deposit into the world uh, through the, his arrival into the world, like the things that matter to him, he brought personally to us with his person, his sacrifice, his love, and his grace. I think that is really a very special way for us to use these four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And so uh, today is all about hope. Right? That we are anchored to hope, that we are longing for hope. It's this idea that God decides to come into the world when the world is hopeless and show us what real hope is all about. To be our hope, but also to give us a sense of what this is so that we can bring that hope to others. So it's not simply about us enjoying an interpersonal hope, but it's us enjoying that so that we can hopefully be ambassadors of that hope to other people. And so that's what we get to reflect on today as we enjoy the second Sunday of Advent. And as we start this morning, what I want to do is something that I shared last week we want to do for this entire season, which is normally I open in prayer and you follow along and then you say amen, but we want to create some space for us. We want this season to be different. And so I'm just going to give us a moment here of silence where you, right there in your seats or at home or wherever you're at, you can just take a moment to pray, to go to God, to thank God, to seek God, say, God, teach me about your hope. Maybe some of you feel like, man, you don't have much hope right now, and it's, God, remind me of hope, or maybe you have tremendous hope, and it's to be, to be the prayer of, God, help me to be this ambassador of hope to others. I don't know what your prayer is, but I know that it's important for us as a people and congregation to sometimes just collectively pray to ourselves as a group going to God together in a special way. And so right now, I'm just going to give you a moment, and at the end of a few moments here of silence, and I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll get underway with what we have for today. And so I just want to give you that space right now. Jesus, I thank you for the power that can come sometimes in the silence. I think about that even with the prophets. So we're so often feeling as though they were um, alone and that the world around them was falling apart. And when they would get away into the silence, they could hear your still small voice. And I pray that that is exactly what you would do in our lives as we are thinking about this time of year and that we are, as we take the time out even to earnestly seek you, reflect on you, remember what you've done. I, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and I pray that from that we would be a different people 
who bring a different vision to the world, one that is so unlike anything people normally come across that there would be a compelling draw to you and that we as your people would represent you well and that we would be people, as we learned last week, of peace and that we would be, as we will learn today, a people of hope not because we're trying to manufacture hope, not because we buy into artificial hopes, but rather it is a hope that is so transcendent and outside of this world that people go, that's something that I can't buy. That's something that I can't just find down the street. What is this hope? And that we would be those people that really understand what it means to communicate that, to live that, and to share that in the way we act and react in the world. And so I pray today that, Jesus, you would remind us of these things and that our hearts would long for your hope and that we would, again, be those people that share that with others. So, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you and we need you in your good name. Amen. So the word Advent simply means arrival or coming or inbreaking, right? That's how simple this idea is. And, and when we take this time out every year to remember the inbreaking of God, what we are in part thinking about is this inbreaking of hope. That there is this thing, this concept that humanity longs for, that we talk about often, and that you see plastered all over the holiday spirit and season, hope for the world, hope for our hearts, hope for our loved ones, whatever else. But, but this is the advent of a legitimate type of hope, a longed-for hope that we see throughout the Bible. And when we stop for this season of Christmas, we are reflecting on this promise, that Jesus isn't just simply the reason for the season, but in that, he is the reason for legitimate hope. And I think this is important because in part, uh, we tend to kind of distort or we sometimes forget about the real story of Christmas. Because as Americans, we have a certain level of affluence and we have a certain level of security and safety and it gives us the ability to enjoy the holidays in a comfortable type of way. And from that, we sort of then load up Christmas with those comforts. And so we engineer it in such a way that we all come together as family with laughter and fun and friendship and lights and ribbons and presents and, and kind of making it merry and bright and all these great things that we get to do. But, but sometimes in that, I think that we then forget that this whole Christmas story didn't start out merry and bright and cheerful and presents and everything else. It's actually a story that is rooted in pain and in darkness and in hardship and in suffering. Which for some of us right now, you're like, he's already destroying Christmas, right? It's like, no, we want this to be a fun celebratory thing. And I go, well, it is in so many ways. But I think at the same time, if we lose sight of the fact that that first Christmas and the whole winding road leading up to that first Christmas, if we lose kind of the bleakness, if we lose the pain and suffering and the hardship, if we lose the hate that was so embedded into that winding story, then in a lot of ways we miss the real beauty of what this holiday is all about because when you read the bible and you read that single story from the beginning of the book all the way up to this emergent presence of god in the world that story is not the stuff of hallmark cards and hallmark movies and little like snow globes and it's not that story it's a very different story that's a very kind of sorrowful story a story of despair and conflict which is why then these ideas of peace and hope and joy 
and love and faith become so profound. Because there's this truth that we call the message of Jesus the good news, but we call it the good news because it's set against this backdrop of bad news. We as a people, we were eager for a change to come into the world and and do something great, but we were kind of resistant to actually see change happen in ourselves to see that change become possible. See, the bad news of the Christmas story is that our selfishness was incredibly invasive. But the good news of the story is that God's grace is relentless even though we have our problems and our sins and our brokenness. And so from that, the essence of Advent is really the essence of hope. A hope that is restored because of a hope that is lost. And it's a hope that's restored because God comes to dwell among us, right? That's kind of the very core of the story. Now, to unpack this just a little bit for us this morning, I want to start with a question, all right? And this is just one you get to answer to yourself. I promise you're not going to have to raise a hand or anything else. But I want to ask you, if you think about the entire template of human history, when was the most hopeless moment in the entire human existence? Where was that setting, that time, that period that was most hopeless? Maybe some will say, well, it was when Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. That's got to be the most hopeless scene. Or maybe it was when Israel was under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, and that's the hopelessness. Or maybe the hopelessness is when we see just war and genocide and the hatred of human beings one to another. Maybe that is the most hopeless time. Or even if you're a Seahawks fan right now, maybe this feels hopeless. Wow, look at us. Three wins. Woohoo! We're going nowhere. All right. Now, here's the answer to this the most hopeless time in all of human history was actually in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now you're like, I've been to Sunday school, Matt. That doesn't seem hopeless if I know my Bible. But see, here's what it was. Back in Genesis, God makes the man, God makes the woman. He puts them in Eden, and they're in Eden in Genesis chapter 2. That is the most hopeless time. And the reason it's hopeless is because the daily planner of Adam and Eve were very simple. Wake up, don't get dressed because it's okay to be naked. Eat some fruit, play with some animals, hang out in the sun, and know that tomorrow will be just as good as today. In other words, Eden was hopeless before sin because there was no need for hope. One of the things we forget sometimes is some of the values that we most hold dear and the things we most esteem, we esteem because there's a negative connected to the positive. So for example, without offense, you don't have forgiveness. So we go, man, we love forgiveness, but you need offense to have forgiveness. We love grace, but you need fault to really have grace, right? So there's these weird things that are true, and we love them, but you need the opposite of those things to appreciate these other good virtues. But in Eden, there was no problems, there was no brokenness, there was no failure, and so it was hopeless in every positive way. It had never entered the mind of Adam and Eve to think like, man, we really hope that when we wake up tomorrow, there's something new and cool. 
was just bliss. It was great. It was perfect. perfect. So in that sense, it was a blissful hope of hopelessness. So weird. But by Genesis 3, this ignorance of wanting or needing hope evaporates and it becomes a hopeless mess. Because they exchange blessing for cursing. They give up freedom for shame. They exchange contentment for despair. And as their eyes are opened to their need, their hearts are darkened. Right? And they fall into this idea of despair. They suddenly realize that all of their, quote, hopes are dashed. They suddenly have this sense of hopelessness when they didn't even understand the idea of hope before that. So everything begins to fall apart and spin out of control, and so they begin to chase a hopeless hope. And this becomes the plight of human beings at that point. We're like, no, we got to get back to this blissful state, and we want this security in life, and we want everything to be perfect again, and, and there's this longing, and so it's a chase. We get on this treadmill of longing for new things. And so some of the ways we tried to do this is in some cases, we said, well, we just got to stick up idols in our lives that will give us a sense of hope. So we're going to look to people or places or things or ideas that can instill a hope in us because we've lost this sense of contentedness. So we tried to self-make heaven to get out of our personalized hell, and that didn't necessarily work. So we said, well, let's chase ideal conditions, right? So we can remove the despair and have some sense of hopefulness restored. And as you see throughout the Bible, there was this idea that's like, okay, we lost Eden. And we lost the garden. But maybe if we're just smart enough, driven enough, clear enough, focused enough, diverse enough, we can create these greenhouses like a new Eden, self-made in our image. It's not Eden, it's Meden. It's my Eden, made by me. And from that, it reinstills a sense of hope in a hopeless world. But it's just a treadmill. Humanity for the longest time just keeps chasing a better tomorrow and it doesn't ever seem to really materialize and stay for any length of time. And it's interesting because one of the wisest dudes in the entire Bible dedicates an entire piece of literature to this. Solomon has this book called Ecclesiastes. And he says Ecclesiastes is just basically letting us know that it is a vain chase to have this world give us this idea of hope. Just as much as it's a vain chase, have this world give us peace or joy or faith or real deep purpose. He says, in the end, the world is ill-equipped for that task. And so we, we just keep longing and wanting and hungering and seeking this idea of hope. But Paul tells us why we struggle with this. And Paul tells us, ultimately, the source of hope and why then hope can be so elusive. In Ephesians chapter 2 he's writing to a new group of followers of jesus and he's reflecting on their old way of life and how things have changed for them he says in verse 12 of ephesians 2 he says remember that you were at one time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise he says your ultimate condition was having no hope and without god in the world. 
Now, here's what I appreciate about what he says here. Notice what he connects. There's this connection there at the end where he's like, you are without hope and without God. And and he's trying to get our attention to that. Like, if we seek hope in any other mechanism, any other security, any other thing but God, there's always going to be this perpetual sense of hope isn't there. Hope isn't lasting. Hope isn't secure. So what Paul is ultimately saying is wherever there is God, then then you're going to find hope. But where there is no God, there is no hope. So he wants these connected in our minds so we understand the real source of hope. Hope is not seen in having the right mindset or right conditions, which is typically what we think as humans. He says no hope is founded in right position and right relationship. We always think if it's better tomorrow, that's my hope. But he's like, no, 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 tomorrow might be a mess. But if God is your hope, it doesn't matter if tomorrow is a mess because God is your hope. See, this is the key. Here's where it gets a little bit more weird, right? This lack of fulfillment that we sense, this absence of hope sometimes, uh, this was engineered by God. This is where it gets a little strange today. See, God is the source of hope, but what he deposited into the world when everything fell apart in Genesis 3 was this longing for something different, this longing for hope. And so he subjects us to the challenges of life to drive us to a proper hope. In fact, here's this weird little thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So what he's saying is that you and me and the whole world that we live in, everything here was intentionally subjected to Ecclesiastes living. All right. So in other words, God's like, here's the way I'm going to try to heal the world. I want them to have a longing. I want them to sense loss. I want them to see the brokenness of doing it their own way, going it alone, making their own rules. I want them to see that when they're at the helm of their own lives, it just doesn't fulfill. And so I'm subjecting it to futility but in hope. That's the part that's strange, right? I'm going I'm to let something be broken, but in the hope of it being restored and fixed and fulfilled. See, it reminds us that uh, we can't drum this whole idea up in our own strength, but it has to be injected into the world from the outside into our lives. And so I take us back to Eden, right? Back to that fateful scene in chapter 3, right? So we know the serpent comes in. He's like, hey, do you really think God said this? They get into this whole thing about probably not, and they reach out, and they try to take for themselves something out of due season, and instantly everything comes apart. And while moments before that, they had never pondered the notion of hope because there was no need for it, Now there's this sudden sense of hopelessness because of their decision. They're ashamed, they're afraid, it's all off the rails, they know nothing is going to be the same after this, it's just a big mess. And in that, God is now divvying out the consequence of this decision. And in the midst of this incredibly now hopeless scene in every bad way of being hopeless, there is this weird verse And it's a verse that in theology we call the proto-evangelium. Fancy word, it's a Latin word, proto-evangelium. 
but it means the first good news. So in Genesis chapter 3, it's all this bad news. To the serpent this, to the woman this, to the man this, get out of the garden, all this bad news. But in the center of the chapter is the first good news. It says in verse 15, God saying this to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That right there we call the first good news. And the reason is three critical words there. I want you to notice three words, her offspring, he. Just those three become kind of this cryptic series of dots that is going to drive the entire story through the rest of the Bible. And we're supposed to be looking at that. We're supposed to focus on there's a her, there's a woman at some point in the story, in some way connected to Eve, but there's a her that really matters. And the her is going to have an offspring, a child. And the child is going to be a son. And that son, while he will be somehow struck by the serpent, he's going to take the serpent's head and press it underfoot. That's going to show his conquering of the serpent. So God warns the serpent, there will be one from a woman someday that changes everything, and you will lose to him. You will strike him, but he will best you. That's embedded in the very first chunk of the story. And this proto-evangelium is our first bit of hope. It's a hope that we long for. It's a hope that we lock onto. It's a hope that there will be an offspring that comes and changes everything. But as the story unfolds, it just gets bad after that. Right? You go into chapter 4, and these poor parents have to watch as one of their sons kills another one of their sons. I mean, just humanize that for a minute. Imagine you had two boys, and one boy kills the other boy. I mean, it just divides a family. And by the end of that chapter, you see where a guy just kills a stranger because the stranger tries to kill him. And then you get a couple more chapters in, and humanity is a mess. You get a few more chapters in, the nations are dispersed everywhere. It's where we get conflict, warfare, genocide, hatred. It just spins up into chaos. And you're like, well, where's the hope in that? But it's in Genesis 12 up through Genesis 22 that you see, again, the hope begin to spring forth. And God comes to a man named Abram, eventually Abraham, and he's like, dude, I'm going to use you to actually reestablish blessing to the nations. These nations that divided in chapter 10 and 11, I will use you to heal them, and I'm promising you that in chapter 12. And so the story early on gives the tempo and direction of where God is going to go to sow hope into the world. And so he tells Abraham, I'm going to use you. You're going to be hope for the nations. But then it's amazing because the story looks hopeless at that point because God chooses an old dude and his old wife to have a son to supposedly change everything. And so you go, that's not going to happen. But then in their old age, they have a little boy. And the little boy grows up into his early teens. And it's in that se season and, and time of life where it seems hopeful again that God's like, all right, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son up on a mountain. I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to kill him. And so suddenly, now it looks very hopeless. But Abraham starts to go through with this, and he takes his son up onto the mountain. He puts him on the altar. He raises the knife to take the life of his son. 
And then it's in that moment the angel of the Lord calls from heaven and he says, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied. He says, here I am. And the voice says, don't lay a hand on the boy for you don't want to hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God for you have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. This is one of those weird stories in the Bible. But, but God keeps kind of moving the story back and forth. And so again, he says, I promise I'm going to bring hope to the world. I'm going to change the world. Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your son to do it. Now I want you to sacrifice your son. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I don't know why, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow through. And then God says, don't do it. The question becomes to me is not so much, why did God ask this of Abraham? That's a pretty, I mean, that's a fair question. It's not the one I'm addressing today. I think the question I look at here is, well, why did Abraham go through with it? Why would he be willing to do it? What we see in Romans 4, that it says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, this is a weird, cryptic, strange passage in Romans 4. But it starts to connect some dots, right? In other words, we see this word offspring. We're like, ah, this is familiar. And we see the word hope. And we see that Abraham had a hope in God that no matter what came his way, God was going to execute this plan. And so in hope, he says, God, I trust you. I believe that even if I do this thing you're calling me to do, somehow you're going to move beyond this. You're going to be faithful. You're going to rise my son from the dead. You're going to do something so that you execute your plan to bless the nations through my legacy and my offspring. And so in hope against hope, he trusts God. And God sees that he trusts him. And so he stops him. He says, don't, don't do it. It says, then going back into Genesis 22, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, what I love about the story, again, is it's connecting the dots. So in Genesis, God says to Eve, you're going to have an offspring, and he's going to undo the damage. And now he says to Abraham, you're going to have an offspring that's going to undo the damage. And, and notice how particular it is. He said to Eve, you're going to have an offspring who is a son. And now he's saying to Abraham, you have this offspring who's your one and only son. See, like God loves to foreshadow the story. Right? And so that's what he's doing in this context. So we're like, who's the offspring? Who's the woman? Who's the son? What's this all about? The one and only son that will be the offspring to heal the nations, bless the nations. Well, then we fast forward another 1,500 years, and we see another dot in the story, the dot of hope, when it says in Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So it's another one of these cryptic, strange little signs. The offspring of the virgin's womb is here in Isaiah 7. An offspring that maybe is connected to Abraham, that's maybe connected to Eve. Like, how do these dots connect? Well, then we fast forward another 700 years. We come to a simple carpenter living in kind of a dumpy little town, engaged to a teenage girl. 
And it's in that scene that he finds out that this girl is pregnant, and he's like, it's not mine, and I don't know whose it is, but she's my fiance, and I can't marry her in this state, but she's a sweet girl, she's nice, I don't want her to be shamed in public, I'll put her away privately, and I'll find somebody else to marry, and I'll go on with my life, and everything will be normal for me, and I don't know what will happen to her, but again, I can't marry her because she's pregnant. But it's in that scene, in a dream, that he has a vision, a voice, an angel, a spokesman comes to him. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, when he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so what you see then is that the Bible really is a single unfolding story. And in this short, short amount of time this morning, we've gone from Eve to Abraham to Isaiah to Joseph and Mary, right? All of which is just a connection of the dots of this unfolding good news of hope. That ultimately Christ is the offspring of Eden's promised good news. Right? It was set back at the beginning, and it follows all the way through to the end. In fact, listen to Paul connect the dots here in Galatians. He says in the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, and he said to him, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, he says, and it does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Right? So way back, what did God promise him? Was he saying all of your people that are Israelites are all going to be the ones that bless the nations? He's like, well, really what I'm getting at is there's going to be this one offspring eventually that blesses the nations. Go back to Genesis 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? The her is of Mary, the offspring is of Abraham, and the he is the Christ of God. Like God has always wanted us to know from the beginning there was hope. Always. And that we are to trust that hope. We are to long for that hope. We are to display that hope. We are to put all of our stock and faith in the offspring of hope. That God would come among us and God would come for us and that God is our hope revealed in the person of Jesus. I close with the words of Romans 15. Paul's quoting Isaiah. And he says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. From this may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, it's very easy for us to hope in many things, to try to get our hope from many things. And yet what God's message is, is he is our source. He is the one we should long for to establish that hope in us. And the more that we do that, the more we will sense that, the more the world will see that, and they will understand the true meaning of hope. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus 
I confess that it is very easy to hope in conditions that they will change or be ideal. It's easy to hope in individuals that they will measure up to whatever it is I seek or I need or I want. It's easy to hope in an economy. It's easy to hope in a country. It's easy to hope in strength or security. But I pray that we would hope above all else in you and therefore from that when other things fail, our hope is strong. It succeeds. Because really hope is predicated on a belief in you, a connection to you, a relationship to you. And that's what we see in the hope that unfolds throughout the Bible that we were subjected to futility so that we realize that only in you do we find lasting hope. May that be true of our lives in everyday spaces. We seek you in your name. Amen.